0: Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to remind you about the Strong Towns Academy, academy academy.strongtowns.org. The early bird subscription pricing is expiring this Friday. That would be June 5th. Uh, We're going to end the early bird pricing. We met all of our targets in terms of the number of subscribers. And so we're going to be uh, ending that early bird program, going to a regular pricing approach If you want to get in on that, if this is something that interests you, go to academy.strongtowns.org and get signed up. Uh, We're going to be releasing, in fact, I'm working right now on on the first part of the first class. Uh, We're going to be releasing classes over the next 12 months, eight different courses, over 40 hours of instruction. There's going to be uh, many, many continuing ed credits. If you need those, I help you walk through and create a plan for your community Go to academy.strongtowns.org and get signed up by this Friday to get that early bird pricing. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. There's a strip mall out on the edge of the neighboring city. I live in Brainerd, Minnesota, and Baxter, Minnesota is right next door. They're essentially the traditional city and the suburb. Baxter is the suburb. Brainerd is the old railroad town, paper mill town, traditional neighborhood. I live in Brainerd today. I grew up in Baxter, the Marone homestead. My great-great-grandfather's uh, homestead is in Baxter. That's where my parents live today. That's where I grew up. When I was a kid, Baxter was a thousand people. Now it's over 9,000. So, you know, substantial amount of growth, still a very small place. In Baxter, on the north side, on the very far edge of town, along the highway corridor, there was a strip mall that was built in 2007. It's not your typical strip mall. You know, your typical strip mall (laughs) looks like something that will be around for 15 or 20 years and will ultimately blow down in a strong wind. This was like the higher end type of strip mall, grand facade, big building, lots and lots of places. You'd almost call it An outlet mall, an outdoor mall kind of thing. It was a rather big facility, and it was anchored on one end by a famous Dave's, a restaurant. When it opened, I remember when it opened because being in a small town, anytime a a new chain restaurant comes to town, there's all kinds of buzz. Right, everybody's talking about it. Hey, we we got an Olive Garden now. We did get an Olive Garden, but it's it's gone now. (laughs) It didn't last. We just got uh, five guys and it's almost embarrassing how the be 50 cars lined up trying to get into five guys the week it opens as if you couldn't just drive 60 miles up the road and go to five guys in the neighboring big city. But you know, what the heck we like it. So we line up and we go to these places. I remember when famous Dave's opened, my brother liked to go there. And so my brother and his wife and my wife, and i would go occasionally uh, this is back before we had kids no we had kids then so i'm trying to i'm trying to put in the context of my life this is about 2007 my kids were born in 2004 and 2007 so we would have gone with young kids it's a good place to take young kids cuz it's kind of loud and obnoxious anyway i'm getting off topic the strip mall was a a big facility had very high facades decorative facades out front a big parking lot all along the highway. And it had the misfortune of opening, like I said, in 2007. For those of you that doesn't bring immediate alarm bells to right after this was open, the market took a huge swoon. We had the housing crisis, banking crisis, a whole like financial catastrophe. And there were all kinds of properties, particularly residential properties that were getting turned back to the banks commercial growth stalled. My office at the time was in the basement of a local bank. And I just remember the abject panic that these guys had. I mean, they were, in a sense, owners or investors, (laughs) investors soon to become sole owners of a whole bunch of properties around the region that ultimately wound up to be pretty bad investments. They were partially involved in this one. And so I got a little bit of inside information on how it went, nothing confidential, but just it was a big investment. We were all kind of shocked by it. And then the misfortune of hitting right at the wrong time, is this place going to go through foreclosure? It didn't. And it didn't for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to, well, I could get into, I kind of talked about this a little bit, a couple podcasts ago about the extend and pretend phenomena. All these different things that can keep these things kind of financially afloat for a while, particularly if you have a well-heeled, well-capitalized investor that can continue to make payments. I mean, really, if you can make the payments, they don't want to foreclose on you. And so they would rather extend and pretend. They'd rather pretend you will ultimately fill this. But it was painful for a long time. I used to live out in that direction and I would drive by it every day on my way to work, every day when I would take the kids to school. Anytime we were coming into town to go shopping or do anything, we would drive by this place. And year after year after year, you had one restaurant on the end, a little local shop that was kind of iconic there, a little seafood place it was, and then a whole bunch of nothing. And I mean nothing, like vacant, vacant, big sign out front with no no tenants in it. It was painful. Over time, this thing started to fill in a little bit it started to get a tent or two. The rumor that I had heard, and I'm going to call it a rumor, what I was told was that if you were willing to move there, they would give you one year, 18 months, uh, maybe even up to two years of free rent at the front end if you would sign a long-term lease. So I think it was if you would sign a five-year lease, they would give you a year free if you'd sign a A seven-year lease, they'd give you 18 months. If you'd sign a 10-year lease, they would give you two years free. And, you know, this is all part of the extend and pretend. If you give them one year free on a five-year lease, that's essentially a 20% discount. If you discounted the rent 20% and just made them pay from day one, you would have to value the property differently. The idea that you can keep the lease rates up but give a teaser rate up front, it's the same amount of cash. It's just structured differently. And the bank can pretend that the rate, the non-teaser rate is the amount that is ultimately the market rate for the building, the amount that you would get. And so they can justify a higher valuation. They can extend your loan. There's all kinds of things that go along with that. These places sat empty despite that. I know one business that went in, And I was kind of like suspect about it. I I knew the people, they're very nice. I thought the business strategy just, you know, I didn't know their business plan or anything like that, but just the business that they were in seemed not very viable to me. And in fact, around the 11 month mark, so shortly before they were going to have to start paying rent, which I, I think would be pretty substantial on the place, it closed down. The business did. And so you know, it's been a series of those little things that would open up. I think people with some dreams of being along the highway and all the value that would come from that. Um, and then it would go away and that would be it. So the strip mall sat there and sat there and sat there. About three or four years ago, it started to f- fill up. At that point, year six or seven of an economic recovery. I use air quotes around recovery. You know, we're we're in year seven of an economic recovery. Donald Trump had just been elected president. There's a sense that, you know, this is going to be good for business. We're going to smooth out regulations, lower taxes, and you know, things will start to boom. And so you did see that. We saw businesses open up there. We saw places start to fill in. There's a, like a gym now, we go to the YMCA. It's like a competitor to the YMCA, but it's not one of the the national chains I've got. We've got like a Planet Fitness here that went into a abandoned place in the mall. It's it's not that, it's something else, but they they do a similar kind of deal. They got classes and that kind of thing. That's been the one that has stayed. There's, there's a few other ones in there. The place now is about half occupied. And so there's probably 10 storefronts that are not occupied and, you know, maybe 10 or 12 in in that range somewhere that are. And the ones that are there seem to be relatively stable. I don't know. We'll see. I I don't go out there as much anymore. So I'm getting snapshots as opposed to day after day after day kind of updates. Here's the fascinating thing though. I went out in this part of town a few months ago. Like I said, I I don't generally go out here. I, I don't have much reason to go out there anymore. Um, but I found myself going up, I think I was going to visit my in-laws or something like that, but just north of this strip mall, guess what they're building? They're building an- another strip mall. <laughs> uh, there's another strip mall going in. I looked at it and the first thing that came to my mind is this is insane. Like this is, this is absolutely crazy. Why, when we literally have the same thing here, that's been sitting underutilized for well over a decade now, you know, going on 13 years of underutilization of this place, who in their right mind would build another one right next door? It's like, I see this failing, you know, it'd be really great. Let's do the same exact thing right here. Who in the world would do this? And then I recognize exactly what was going on and it made perfect sense to me my first gut reaction was, this is insane. This doesn't make any sense. And then my immediate reaction right after that, like the next instant was, oh yeah, I see what's going on. I get it. I get where we're at. Let me explain it to you like this. Let's say there are three businesses out there. Three people who have business plans. They are looking for an investor. You've got business A, business B, and business C. And business A is a uh, existing business. They've been around for many years, maybe a decade, maybe less, but they've been around. They got a track record. They've been operating profitably. They know what they're doing. They've got good management, uh, good approach. And what they really need is money to expand. They're going to open up a new facility. They're going to expand their existing facility. They need some kind of investor to come in and help them, you know, get to the next level. Then you've got business B. Business B is kind of a startup. They're in the very early stages. Their stuff is doing okay. They don't have a long track record, obviously, but they've been somewhat profitable. They seem like they've got good management. They seem like, you know, maybe they could figure this thing out, but it's really kind of early in the process, and I think, you know, you can look at it and say, well, well, maybe this would be something to invest in, but, yeah, you know, there's a lot of risk involved there, and there's a reasonable chance that the thing will not work out then let's look at business c business C is a a hope and a prayer uh someone with a crazy idea they'd like to go out and do something they they've got a business plan, but it's you know it's based on all kinds of rosy scenarios and projections uh if you sit and listen to them, the people making the presentation for business c they they sound kind of like you know shysters like hucksters, yeah, okay, I could see where maybe this would work, but with these guys, you know, like I just, I'm not buying it. They seem the kind of, you know, fly-by-night kind of place that's going to take your money and go. So we got three different businesses. They're all looking for investment capital. And in this community, you've got one person uh, with investment capital, one person who has the capacity to invest in one of these three businesses. Which business will they invest in? Well, it's almost certain that they would invest in business a, that is a, a great opportunity. They're pretty much as much as you can be guaranteed to make money. There's a track record there. The risk is, is present, but it's not, you know, overwhelming. You can see a path towards being okay. And so, you know, they would pick business a, they would negotiate something with business a, they would say, okay, I want this much of an ownership stake or I want this much of a guaranteed rate of return. I'll loan you this money at this rate. I'll invest this other money with this kind of agreement. You know, there, there would be a back and forth and a give and take and the investor in that case would be able to work out a deal that made sense to them. Business B and business C then would go without and would in a sense need some more time. Business B would, you know, have to continue to improve continue to prove themselves worthy of investment and business C I don't know I mean maybe they get off the ground maybe they don't probably not and they go away and they just you know don't get funded we we lose out on whatever potential growth could happen out of that we lose out on whatever jobs could come of it but we also don't have a bad investment you know something that goes bad and and wreck someone's savings or investment portfolio or what have you All right let's say that instead of one investor, now we have two investors. How do the dynamics change when there's two investors wanting to invest in these three businesses? Well, the very first thing that happened is that both are going to try to invest in business a business a like makes the most sense. That's the one you want to put your money in. And so what happens now, business a does not have one person offering them capital. They now have two people. And so right away, The power in this dynamic shifts more towards business A. They're able to look at these two different suitors, uh, figure out which one is going to offer them the best deal, which one is going to give them the most favorable terms, demand the least in return for their investment. And they're going to be able to pick amongst those two because they are, in a sense, like the prettiest girl at the show, right? To use the old saying, the, the nicest shirt in the closet, Everybody wants this one. And so they're going to be able to have much better terms. Business B though, now is going to get the second investor. The second investor is going to say, I I missed out on A, I'm going to go and give my money to business B. And business B, which was marginal, maybe will work out, maybe not. um, Business B is now going to get an investment opportunity. So in a sense, Creating two investors or having two investors instead of one means that two of these businesses will get funded and the terms on the first one will be more favorable. Now let's pretend instead of one investor, instead of two investors, there's five investors or 10 investors or 50 investors. What happens then? Well, at that point, you have a whole bunch of sharks fighting over business A, Business A is incredible amount of demand. Everybody wants to work with them because they've got, you know, the best thing going. And so if you're business A, you're going to get a ridiculously good deal. You're going to have all kinds of people who are looking for a return who are going to want to work with you. You're going to be able to have very low interest rates. You've got to pay. You're going to have uh, not have to give up much of your equity stake. And so you're going to be able to get, because of the amount of players in this, a really good deal. As an investor, whoever winds up with that deal is likely going to be the person who most overestimates the returns and most underestimates the risk. And so that is going to translate to having the investor who winds up with A, actually having a bad investment, actually having an investment that, almost certainly is not going to work out as has been planned. And who who knows who ultimately that is? Maybe it's a pension fund that needs a high rate of return. Maybe it's someone who is uh, nearing retirement who, you know, is desperate to get a few more percentage points of return annually so that they can, you know, meet their retirement goals. Whoever it is is going to have a lot of incentive to think optimistically about the upside of this business and to deeply deeply discount Uh, the potential risks of business A. Well, what does that do to business B? Business B is also going to have many, many suitors, all kinds of people flocking around wanting to give them money, all kinds of people who need a return on their investment who are saying, well, I missed out on A. Now I need to get into B. B is the one that's left for me. That's where I want to be. And B is also going to wind up with a very good deal on their money. Uh, They're going to be able to get really good terms because of all the people competing to invest in them. And the person who ultimately winds up being the investor in business B is going to have a rotten deal. They are going to have, in a sense, overpaid for lower returns than what they're estimating, almost certainly, and a lower percentage of, of ownership and equity than they otherwise would have gotten. Now let's look at business C. This is a business that should never have been funded. It's a business that has no real reason to exist. These people have thrown something together. They really shouldn't get funded. It is what in like a classic economic sense would be called a malinvestment, one that is not going to work out. Yet what happens with business C? Now business C has all kinds of people fighting over it. It has all kinds of places that want to invest money in it. It has all kinds of of people and businesses and pension funds and, and what have you that need to get a rate of return. And they're willing to take the risk with business C because they really desperately need that return. They need some type of return on their capital. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to meet their objectives. They're not going to be able to meet their pension fund requirements. They're not gonna be able to meet their angel investor requirements. They're not gonna be able to meet uh, their retirement goals. Uh, They're not gonna be able to pay their own debts and their own obligations and their own things that they promised to do. So they need this return. So all of a sudden, business C is getting offers for equity, offers for loans that are better than what business A was getting when there was only one investor. This is how you get a strip mall. A new strip mall next to the failing strip mall. This is how you get that. And what we have done today, under the guise of our economic system, is to respond to all calamity by pumping more money into the system. In my book, I talk a little bit about the origins of this thinking. Uh, My book, Strong Towns, a, A Bottom Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. In chapter five, I try to make the case for. The Keynesian response, I start out by talking about housing prices going down in the Great Depression and how people were getting kicked out of their houses, even when they could make the payments, merely because the value of their home had dropped. They couldn't refinance. They weren't allowed to extend and pretend. And so the federal government stepped in with what would be kind of a classic Keynesian kind of stimulus. Let's let's fill the void that is left by people saving and people cutting back during a downturn. Let's fill that void. So we don't get in a deflationary spiral. Uh, They were already in a deflationary spiral, but let's try to get out of it. Let's try to lessen it. And so we help people stay in their house. We help people get better terms for their mortgage. We help people extend their loan terms longer, have lower down payments, uh, have lower interest rates. All these things allow people to stay in their homes. This is fantastic. But what happens when you now are in a growth market and you interpret it as a way to, you know, juice the economy, boost the economy, and instead of helping people in a downturn, you help them the other way. You say, well, you know, everyone should share in this prosperity. So let's pump as much money into the system as the system will bear. Let's get as much money out there so that, you know, more and more people can qualify for loans and more and more people can get into houses. And in fact, let's pump more and more money into this system to get everything going really well so that, you know, we have real estate investment trusts and we've got all this other Wall Street investment money out buying houses as corporations and as LLCs all over the country. This, this will drive up housing prices. This will drive up housing values. This will make everybody rich. And it certainly does. It certainly does. Business C now is a viable business, It's viable not because they have a good business plan or because they have a good business strategy. It's not viable because there's demand for it in the marketplace that would justify its costs. It's a viable business because it can secure funding and in an ongoing basis, continue to have access to capital to overcome the other poor parts of their business operation. This is how we get a strip mall next to the failed strip mall. This is how we get a new strip mall being built right next to one that's already been shown to not work. I heard Peter Thiel, an investor, give a talk a while back where he talked about Apple. And we we think of Apple, the, the company Apple, as one of the most innovative companies in the world. In fact, if you said, you know, name your Name your top five, like most innovative companies in America. Most people would put Apple on that list. They'd likely also put Google on that list. Um, these are like the great corporations of the United States. This is the the Carnegie Steel of our time, right? These are the, the billionaires who came up with a great idea. These are the geniuses out there producing new stuff. But Peter Thiel pointed out, you know, Apple has tens of billions of dollars in cash just sitting there if this was an idea machine, why are they sitting on so much cash? Why don't they put those ideas to work? If if this is an idea machine, you know, something that is, is turning out great idea after great idea, after great idea, it's not like they're starved of resources. Why don't they go out and put the resources they have to work, building new product, building new product lines, expanding into, new spaces, you know, building on their existing ideas in adjacent space. Teal had an answer for this and he said, there's no good investments. They're out of ideas. There's no competitive place to make such an investment. And, And I would take that a step further. And I would say, you know, a business like Apple, very much like a business like Walmart or Costco or McDonald's these are actually businesses, you know, Starbucks that have been so successful and occupied so much space that they're really now more like utilities as opposed to innovators. And they've adopted in a sense, like a defensive position in the marketplace, one where it's better to hoard tens of billion dollars of cash and capital than it is to go out and expand into new markets with new ideas and new products. Why do that when you can essentially just sit at the apex of this system and just make money over and over and over. When we look at housing, what we see are the effects of top-down centralized economic management it's always been frustrating to me when people talk about housing policy as being, you know, a function of zoning or a function of greedy developers or some other kind of modest local thing. I'm not discounting these as, you know, factors that shape it. Um, But we can look around this country and we can see, we look back at 2008 and we all uniformly have no problems at all labeling the period of time between 2001 and 2008 as a housing bubble. A period of time following the dot-com crash, following 9-11, following wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, when our macroeconomic policy was to lower interest rates as far as we can and pump as much money into the economy as we could to stimulate growth, to stimulate job creation, to stimulate investment. And all the investors went out and they chased things like real estate. And we could saw the prices of real estate go up and up and up. We saw strippers in uh, Las Vegas, famously in the book, The Big Short, becoming multi-condo unit owners. We saw people in you know, Florida subdivisions who had no capacity to own one home, owning a dozen homes or more and flipping them and making all kinds of money off this. This, we looked at as like excess, but the excess actually came from something we did financially. It came from having excessive amounts of capital in the system, dumb money. Business C got funded fully everywhere all the time. In fact, there were people fighting to give business C money. And so this investment that never should have happened because there was so much money out there became a continent-wide malinvestment in housing you look at housing today in 2020, you know, before the, uh, the pandemic hit and who knows, you know, what's going to happen now. I, I, I thought the stock market would drop. It did drop. Now it's back up to record levels. Who knows what's going to happen with housing? But the reality is, is we can look back and we can say 2008 was a peak of a housing bubble. And we can look at 2020 on a nationwide basis and housing prices are higher. The Kay Shiller index is higher and I don't mean higher and like, you know, because of inflation, I mean, we have reinflated the housing bubble. The price to income ratio is higher than it was back in 2008. We have blown a bigger housing bubble than we had back then. Add to that the fact that we have a commercial real estate bubble. You have the same kind of metrics that are being tracked. I remember back in the mid 2000s attending a presentation where they said, you know, the United States has six times the amount of retail floor space of any other advanced Western economy. We're way over retailed. We have way too much retail space. We have way too much commercial floor area. What have we done in the decade and a half since? We've quadrupled the amount of retail floor space we have. We just continue to build more and more and more and more. Why? Not because it's a great investment, because there's a lot of investors fighting for any type of return. That strip mall next to the failed strip mall is a bad investment, but there's somebody out there because there's tons of people out there who need returns, who, you know, need things to go up so desperately and they have cash. They've been given cash. They have access to capital. They need things to go up so desperately. They're willing to do the malinvestment of putting more money into a new strip mall next to the failed strip mall. That's where we're at today. When coronavirus hit, the stock market had a huge crash and really rightly so. Was anybody surprised at that? Earnings had been, let's say, tepid. We've been meeting expectations, but you kind of had to close your eyes and look the other way to accept the numbers. A lot of earnings expectation meets that were before interest taxes and depreciation. You had a lot of companies that were looking more and more like zombies. Uh, Companies that were loaded up with debt uh, were increasing their share price with share buybacks. We're not using that debt and that capital they could get to reinvest, you know, the same way I described Apple earlier, but we're using it instead, you know, not using it to expand their business, not using it to expand their product lines, not using it to, um, you know, work in a competitive marketplace, but we're happy to just sit and do what they were doing and use that free capital to jack up their share price and use that money then to pay bonuses to executives. This would look like a system before the pandemic struck that was in its like dying stage. It looked like a system that, you know, had had a long party and was now in the final stages of kind of carving up what was left, the people who could get access to stuff, getting, while well, the getting was good and then head out of town, you know, before it all fell apart. That That's what this looked like. And I think a lot of the smart money, a lot of the inside money seemed to be, Position to have as much upside gain as possible, but with one foot out the door. I don't want to be caught in the stampede when everybody starts to head for the exits. So when the pandemic started, when it came here to the United States, it was not surprising to anyone who watches the markets to see the stock market drop and drop precipitously. You had a 40%, I want to say, loss in the S&P 500 in a short period of time. You had you had massive amounts of downside very quickly. That's all gone now. It's all, it's all erased. It's all erased because what has been our response? I made this joke. I thought it was kind of funny. I think I saw it somewhere. So I'm, I'm not claiming originality on this, but if aliens attacked earth, if aliens came down and, and started to attack earth, the first thing that we would do as Americans would be to lower interest rates. I thought that was like, so funny and insightful because it is true. I think of like the mom who, you know, and this is a stereotype, so cut me some slack, but I see this with my wife. Like, you know, if there's any danger around the first thing she does is look at the kids. Like, where are the kids? Are they safe? It's like her first gut instinct is to to look at the children. Well, the first gut instinct of us as Americans in our macroeconomic situation is how are the big corporations going to fare? Let's lower interest rates. Let's pump money in the system. The aliens are going to attack. Well, okay, some of us are going to die. All right, we'll live with that. We'll figure that one out later. But oh my gosh, we got to make sure that the economy doesn't collapse. So we have to lower interest rates. We've got to pump money in the system. We've now gotten so crazy about it that we actually have not only trillions of dollars of deficits. I mean, there's at least theories of that, that, you know, are coherent. I don't buy them myself, but You know, there's theories that are coherent, but you know, we have the Federal Reserve now setting up shadow companies to just give money to that can just buy stocks and buy corporate debt. I mean, you have these zombie companies out there, you have business C's out there, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, and they have terrible debt on their books, debt that they never should have been given in the first place, that in a a rational, not liquidity soaked economy, they never would have gotten. They've got this money that they now owe and they can't pay it back. Instead of going through a bankruptcy, instead of liquidating, instead of giving the assets a business C over to someone competent to actually run a decent company and come up with new ideas and new innovations and actually serve people in a marketplace, what we're doing is we're going and we're taking all that debt and we're saying, here, we'll roll it over for you. We'll give you debt at lower interest rates. We'll extend it out so you can stay in business. We're going to keep you around a little bit longer. This was going on before the pandemic. Now it's going on in like atomic fashion at levels that are mind numbing, just mind numbing. And so when I see the new strip mall, I just laugh. I know exactly what's going on. We are awash in the United States with dumb money, with just crazy money with levels of cash that are just ludicrous. And this may sound nutty to you because you may be sitting there going, my gosh, I don't have any money and my city doesn't have any money and nobody in my neighborhood has any money. We all seem broke. We all seem strung out. Yeah, of course. Like that's, that's a side effect of this. Every reasonable thing, every rational use of money gets crowded out. Oh, you, you know, we can't afford employees. Well, you know what we can do? We can go borrow a bunch of money and put in a bunch of robots to uh, flip our hamburgers. Uh, you know, we're having trouble uh, keeping staff. Oh, no, we're not going to pay them more. Uh, we can just take and replace that labor uh, with kiosks and with other things. All of a sudden, like everything in the system is crowded out and overwhelmed by all this excess liquidity, all this free capital. That's the system we have. And it's based on a theory that when things go bad, the more money you pump in, the better things will run. I think this is a bad theory. Many of you will email me and will text me and message me and say, Chuck, you've got it backwards. Uh, You don't know what you're talking about. Fine. Okay. You can have that thought. I don't care. I see the strip mall going up. And the only rational explanation for that is that someone, someone is either an absolute idiot and has a ton of money to just throw away on a pipe dream or someone is really smart and knows that they can get paid to do a transaction that has no value, has no demand in the marketplace, but that they won't be left holding that bag. Which one do you find more credible? You hear a lot of talk today about deflation and the fear of avoiding deflation because deflation devastates economies. And let me give you one way that deflation is devastating, but let me put it through the federal lens. If you're the federal government and you know the economy experiences a 10% increase in size, let's say everybody's wages goes up 10% and we experience inflation and you're like, oh my gosh, 10% inflation. This is a high level of inflation, but everyone pays taxes. On that ten percent, so if your tax rate is thirty percent, you're gonna pay you know uh, extra thirty percent on that ten percent raise. You're gonna you're basically you're gonna be paying more money in than you otherwise would, and if prices go up ten percent and your salaries go up ten percent, you're actually gonna be worse off because a lot of that wage increase is gonna be sent to the government in taxes. Let's say now that we experience deflation your salary drops by 10%. You don't have to email me. I know salaries are sticky. I know all that stuff. But let's say, you know, over time, your salary were to drop by 10%. And let's say that prices also drop by 10%. So we experienced across the board 10% deflation. Well, you're actually sending less money now to the government. You're actually paying less in taxes because you have less income. You're paying less taxes. But your purchasing power now is better, is improved because while, you know, your salary dropped by 10%, so did the cost of everything. And you're sending less money to the governments. You actually have more money proportionately to spend. Inflation is a good economic policy if you are a government. Deflation is a devastating economic policy if you are a government. So with that framing, let's look at inflation and deflation. Oftentimes, and and I remember when Ben Bernanke became head of the Federal Reserve, he was supposedly an expert. (sighs) I said supposedly like a smart aleck. He is an expert in the 1930s. My supposedly was more in line with, I don't know what value that gives you, but he was touted as someone who has a, a deep understanding of what was done incorrectly in the 1930s that caused the depression to linger. There is a train of thought. Again, this is a valid train of thought. Unlike physics, you can't really run economic experiments where you say, you know, if, if we do A, then B will happen. You know, if we, if we uh, have a theory, so if we look at the light coming by this planet, we should be able to measure the deflection. No, in, in economics, these are complex adaptive systems. There's no predictive capacity in that same way as like with physics. But ben Bernanke was an expert in what happened in the Great Depression and the idea, the kind of foundational idea of of a train of thought that says if we had been more aggressive in acting during the Great Depression, the depression would not have lasted as long as it did. In fact, this line of thinking will look at and say, you know, it was World War II that brought us out of the depression. It was all the stimulus spending of World War II that got us out, got us back to full employment, got the economy moving again, and and look, it just carried into the 50s and 60s and was this great economic renaissance, all because we finally got aggressive with government spending. (sighs) Yeah, I've always found that narrative to be lacking in one specific way. And that is that I get it if the 1930s happened in a bubble, if humans came into existence in 1929, the stock market crashed, you have this huge fallout and then bam, we're in the 1930s. I think you could make the case that the economy needed a spark. Let's pour some money into it. Let's get people to work. Let's get them building dams and roads and parks and zoos and all this stuff. And, and let's get things going. But humans did not come into existence in 1929. Uh, They were around for thousands and thousands of years. And it's difficult to look at the 1930s and the Great Depression without looking at the 1920s. I described earlier Business C being flooded with capital, having so much money uh, thrown at them that all this malinvestment happens. Basically, that was the 1920s. A period of such rampant speculation... That stocks, you know, using leverage, using borrowed money, had their valuations just through the roof. Companies that had no reason to exist were not doing well at all, you know, should not have been around, were all of a sudden fully funded. Ideas that were very speculative and should not have gotten money, certainly not at low, low rates, were all of a sudden flooded with capital and given all kinds of money. And even the good businesses, even the sound businesses, even the businesses that you'd say are business A kind of businesses, uh, the speculation on them was so rampant that they actually turned into bad investments as well. When you take a good business and you overestimate its profits and you underestimate its risks and its hardships, you pay too much for it. You make bad investments. And so the 1920s was a systematic over and over and over creation of bad investments. When we hit the 1930s, I remember my grandpa telling me, when we hit the 1930s, you have this period of of great, you know, hardship. I remember my grandpa telling me about living through the depression. He actually said once, you know, without FDR I would be dead. And I'm like, well that sounds crazy grandpa, but you know, you were there, I wasn't. I hear what you're saying, like I get it. But there certainly was this like deep level of desperation. And it's hard to argue that the programs and the spending and the things we did to forestall the depths of the depression were not really important things to do to keep people from starving, to keep people in homes, to keep the worst economic calamity from inflicting permanent damage on people. I mean, I I will tell you that in that instance, I certainly would have been a Keynesian. I certainly would have been someone who lets help people. Yet, I step back and I say, what if we had the current policy approach, the policy approach that has evolved out of the experience of the Great Depression, uh, the experience of post-World War II period, our experience with now a series of economic bubbles and how we were able to counterman them and counteract them and get the economy going again. What if we had the current policies in place today? What if we had those policies in place in the 1930s? Would we have propped up the stock market crash? Would we have said in 1929, no, 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 no. You know, stocks, they might be sky high. They might you know, be based on massive amounts of speculation. These valuations might not have any you know, relationship at all to what the economy is doing, to what these companies are performing. So what we are going to do is we are going to just make sure that this stock market doesn't crash. So yeah, stock prices want to go down. Nope. We're going to buy them and buy them and buy them until they go back up. Businesses want to fail. Nope. We're going to buy their debt and loan them money and give them everything they need so that they continue on. What if that would have happened during the 1930s? What if that would have been our approach? I think we would have entered World War II, a complete basket case. We would have entered World War II as a a complete backward economy. You know, we look at like the history of World War II you look at the Soviet Union as being this dysfunctional place. The joke was always, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. The Soviet economy was deeply, deeply dysfunctional because it didn't have the feedback loops that actually created productivity. Yes, they could throw lots of capital. They could throw lots of energy at problems and they'd see some breakthrough at times, but systematically across the board, it was a very dysfunctional economy. When the Germans attacked the Soviets, the Soviets were in complete disarray and it took them months and months and months, years to build up their industrial capacity, to build up their capacity to fight and resist. It was a very slow moving machine that took immense amount of focus and effort to get it to do a base amount needed to fight the war. And even then, they wound up sacrificing tens of millions of people in the process. If we had done in the 1930s what we're doing now, we would have kept a bunch of zombie companies afloat. We would have had a deeply, deeply dysfunctional U.S. economy. And quite frankly, I think there's a reasonable case to be made that we would have not been able to respond in world war II, the way we did we would have had to work through all of that dysfunction in order to make things work and even if that is not true even if we were able to focus and change and and fix things and get things going the idea that then we would have some type of sustained economic bliss and recovery in the decades after i just don't see it i don't see it there would have been too much damage done By all the malinvestment, by all the bad systems, by all the things that should have gone away that wasted our wealth and capacity. The 1930s were horribly painful, and I'm not trying to downplay that in any way. But the 1930s is what corrected the problems of the 1920s, the excesses of the 1920s, and the 1930s set us up for what came next. I look at where we're at today and how we fixed the dot-com bubble. We fixed the dot-com bubble by blowing a housing bubble. We fixed the housing bubble now by blowing a second housing bubble and adding on to it a bubble in commercial real estate and really what has been called the everything bubble. The idea that everything is overvalued. Everything is a malinvestment. Everything in our economy is missing the feedback loops that it needs to actually work out. In my book, I talked at the end of that chapter five about Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita. Uh, these were hurricanes that struck uh, New Orleans and the Gulf Coast back in, uh, I want to say 2005. Yeah, it was, it was 2005. Um, the train's coming through here, so uh, you get a little bit of the office ambiance here uh, for a second. Um, I hope you can hear that. It's kind of fun. In two thousand and five, when the hurricanes came through, they destroyed large parts of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. I-, I visited some of the neighborhoods in New Orleans, and the devastation was overwhelming. It was just astounding. It was amazing. New Orleans today has still not recovered from this. And, you know, we're going on sixteen years now. You have massive amounts of devastation. And if you measure, the devastation in terms of the wealth of the people of New Orleans, this was horrific. Like I said, they've never recovered. People whose value in their homes, values in their neighborhoods, not to mention the values in their businesses and the social connections, all of this was destroyed in this brief environmental cataclysmic moment. Yet if we step back and we look at the GDP, if we look at the economy as as a thing and we're going to say, we're going to measure our success based on the economy, what you see is that Hurricanes Katrina and Rita were incredibly stimulative. They both boosted GDP tremendously. I list the numbers on page 103 of my book. You can go through and see. In the second half of 2005, when the hurricanes came through, there's a huge drop in GDP And that's because oil wells were shut off and shipping didn't happen and consumption didn't happen and all these things went bad. But then in quarter after quarter, after quarter, after quarter, for years after Hurricane Katrina had a massive stimulus effect, billions and billions of dollars of economic growth happened as a result of those hurricanes. People out rebuilding, people out cleaning up, all this stuff directly attributable to those hurricanes. This is the dichotomy and, and this is where I want you to get. Cause when you look at that strip mall that's going up in your place and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. I want you to recognize what is happening. What is going on? There is a disconnect. There is a massive disconnect between what is good for the macro economy, the way it is measured today and what is good for a local community. There is a massive disconnect between what is good for the long-term health success and prosperity of your neighborhood and what is good for federal GDP growth, for stock market, for interest rates, for the bond market. There is a massive, massive disconnect. When you have the stock market going up uh, by record amounts and you have unemployment going up by record amounts, you know that there is a massive disconnect between reality as we all live it and experience it, and this veneer of uh, financial craziness that we have created and wrapped ourselves within. When people say 50% of the homes in this community are unaffordable, no one can afford to buy a house. Everyone who buys a house has got to stretch. Those are systems that you can say, well, okay, let's create exclusionary zoning or inclusionary zoning. Let's um, have rent control. Let's do, let's do, let's do. You're fighting against a macro system that is not responding to any real pressing urgent local needs. We have created decades and decades of malinvestment of bad investments, things that should not exist. That second strip mall should not exist. You know why? Because that first strip mall should never have existed. And the complicating thing that we have to work out right now at the local level is unwinding all of these bad investments. The debate right now is really one over. Do we prop up or do we unwind? And if you go to the federal level, it's all about propping up. That's all it is. That is the entire conversation is about propping up the current system, not about unwinding bad investments. If you talk to hardcore libertarians, they're going to say, pull the plug, let the whole thing unwind, let it all go bad. I'm telling you that would end not in anarchy. That would end in despotism. That would end in some catastrophic place that none of us want to go. We're not going to get leadership on this. I don't think I don't, I don't see how we get leadership on this from the federal level. All the incentives are wrong. I don't know how we get leadership on this from the state level. All the incentives seem wrong there too. To me, this is something that we're going to have to start doing ourselves. We're going to have to start opting out of these systems. We're going to have to start putting things in place that favor the small business, the local entrepreneur, the place that you walk to, as opposed to the place you drive to the place that serves 20 people in a neighborhood, as opposed to 2000 people in a region, we're going to have to make that conscious choice ourselves. And that goes against, in a sense, the culture we have built around consumption, the culture we have built around the current version of America. I just want you to see that strip mall for what it is. I want you to see it along with me. It's not what the people in Baxter think now is, oh, people love us. They're investing in us and they cheer it because they're like, wow, look at, we're getting all this investment now because people want to be in Baxter. They want to build in Baxter. They want to grow in Baxter. No, none of that is true. Don't delude yourself. The money's there and it's getting built because there's just money everywhere. Anything that has a pulse right now can get money. If it's connected to the current system, if it's not connected to the current system, good luck, you're going to starve. But if it's connected to the current system, it will throw endless amounts of money at it. Recognize it for what it is. It's a malinvestment. It is a sign of deep dysfunction. And if things work out a certain way, a certain way that is not a small probability kind of way, but actually is a very scary probability kind of way, it actually will be a warning of something cataclysmic financially coming down the pipe. We've got to start shoring up our places. We've got to start making strong towns. We have to consciously understand what's going on and opt out of these systems to the extent that we can. It's kind of scary. And I laugh when I see the strip mall uh but it's gallows humor in many way. Because I, I know what I'm looking at is someone's wealth being destroyed, someone's savings being demolished, someone's claim on future work being destroyed. And I know where that leads us. It leads us to horrible, horrible places. I don't think we're gonna rerun the Great Depression. We're gonna run some different experiment. We're gonna try something different. And and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this will all turn out to be swimming. Maybe we'll, you know, uh, it will be just be delightful in the end. We'll print and spend and borrow our way out of this and we'll get back to economic growth and we'll have all this stability and all be great. I tend to think that's not going to happen. I tend to think that, you know, the massive imbalances we see today between rich and poor, between those who can take care of themselves and those who have been made you know, fragile by the current system between the essential workers and those who can live with a level of comfort, not having to really worry about where their food comes from. This is a split to me that is untenable, that can't last. And so we're not going to rerun the 1930s. We're going to do something different. And I'm worried about that. I have concerns about that. Let's start taking steps to opt out Let's start taking steps to fix our places. Let's do what we can with what we have to make our places better, to meet and get to know our neighbors, to plant a garden and start creating our own food. Let's take the steps that are within our power to shore ourselves up against this massive amount of malinvestment, this craziness going on around us. Because ultimately, that's what's gonna be needed. I've said it many times when things get tough, they're going to need us. Uh, they're going to need strong townspeople out there with level heads, people who have worked in advance to shore things up, people who are ready to jump in and and fill the breach. That's going to be us. So get ready, get ready for that. I feel like that's coming and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to drive up the highway and see uh, the new strip mall going in and not think that, uh, you know, this is the, uh, this is the signal that uh, we're nearing peak craziness. I thought this in 2008. I thought the first crazy strip mall was a sign of peak craziness. We're reaching another peak now. Uh, will this be the last one or will we uh, buy ourselves another decade of good times? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not risking it. Real quick at the end here, just a garden update. I got the garden in at my parents' place next to their garden. Um, I got a fence up around it now so the deer and the bunnies can't uh, ruin my crops, at least not very easily. Um, We've got corn and potatoes already coming up, which in Minnesota, it's not even June yet. I'm happy with that. That's great. Should have some beans coming up by uh, early June. And uh, things are looking really good. If you have an opportunity, get out and plant your own, even if it's a little container garden in your yard, learn how to plant. It's a good way to uh, experiment. It's a good way to build your own knowledge base. It's a good way to build resiliency. And when you're done, have your neighbors over and have a great meal and start building community too. Take care, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity for becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 that's the start. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.